So I'm going to talk tonight uh, uh, about an introductory message. It's an introductory message of something that came up during the conference. And um, I think most of you were at the conference. So you guys probably remember when Dan mentioned the idea of innocence being associated with childhood and how, uh, you know, I've known Dan for a long time. And there is a quality of innocence in him that keeps him steady, which is really stunning. And you know that, that uh, childness and child becoming like a child is an important factor for me. So uh, we, we kind of jumped on that topic on our Tuesday discussion, Tuesday night discussion. And Ronnie, this is Ronnie over here, Ronnie asked a question at the beginning, and he said, so if we're going to talk about innocence and what we believe about it and all that kind of stuff, should we, shouldn't we start by defining what it is? And I uh, pressed my pastoral prerogative and said, I'm not really ready to go into the definition right now. I think we've all got some ideas we talked about a little bit. And we had a pretty good discussion, I thought. I thought it was fun. But that triggered me to try to go ahead and define innocence. Now, for those of you that have been at Joyland quite a while, you might remember that when we moved down to Colorado Springs for that season, one of the things the Lord asked me to preach about, teach about, was about our heart and changing our attitude towards our heart and, and the various things in it. And I thought, oh, how hard could teaching about the heart be? I mean, pretty common. Wow, there's a lot on it. There's a lot on it. This idea of innocence has eclipsed that. And so tonight is going to be an introductory uh, look at this of innocence defined. Okay? So uh, let's get started. I don't usually pray before I preach. I mean, I pray a lot before I get ready to preach, but I don't usually, it's not like a magic formula. But I'm going to pray tonight because I feel like we're walking into holy ground. I feel like we're walking into a truth and a reality that we have a tendency, I think, to take for granted. And we can say yes to it quickly, but I don't see it manifesting body-wide, church-wide, in the lives of believers in the way that I think it probably ought to and can. And so, Holy Spirit, I would come to you tonight to sow into our heart and into our thinking a greater understanding of the innocence that we have been restored to. And that, that the restoration is really a big deal. It's really, really significant. And so help us to, to understand, to hear it, to see it, to sense it, and then help us to engage with it in practical ways that are going to create a place for our embrace of innocence, the innocence that you have provided for us, that you have forgiven us to achieve, and that you died and rose again for us to have. So I thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Okay. So I want to just start, like I do sometimes when, when I'm surprised by the meaning, with just some regular definitions. So this is a Merriam-Webster definition of innocent. Innocent, okay? Innocent is the, is the adjective. First definition, 1A, is free from legal guilt or fault. And a synonym that they throw out is lawful, uh, and they use it in a sentence there, a wholly innocent transaction a wholly lawful transaction, uh, but free from legal guilt or fault. Free from legal guilt or fault, okay? Next one is free from guilt or sin, especially through lack of knowledge of evil. 
Now, I thought that was a really interesting definition. If you push that back into the, our thoughts about what went on with Adam and Eve in the fall, and it was the knowledge of good and evil that, that precipitated the fall, then the idea of a lack of knowledge of evil, and we're going to see that in Scripture in some spots, uh, and it, so it talks like an innocent child, and I thought that was interesting. That's one of the sentences that they put in there. Uh, harmless in effect or intention. So think about this and, and really concentrate on the idea of intention, and the definition is harmless. Searching for a hidden motive in even the most innocent conversations is the sentence they used. And then they attach to this part of the definition the word candid, that he gave me a candid, uh, honest, or an innocent gaze. So even in this first three-part definition as the adjective, you can tell that innocent is a relatively complex word. It's got nuances in it. So the second set of definitions is lacking, it's done in the negative, is lacking or reflecting a lack of sophistication, guile, or self-consciousness. And the synonym is like artless. Okay, and that, that usually sounds derogatory or negative, but the part that I thought was interesting about this is I think as we move forward and, and try to see the association between childness and ourselves, that there is going to probably be more of a lack of sophistication than we're accustomed to, more than we're happy with, more than we think is valuable. And for some reason, I mean, it's, it's not that difficult to know, but sophistication is a quality that's been exalted in our culture in a lot of ways, you know? And so I, I think it's probably turned around to bite us, and it's cost us a little bit of innocent. Uh, ignorant is another synonym, almost entirely innocent of Latin is the sentence uh, somebody wrote in there. And then the idea of unaware, uh, that a person is perfectly innocent of the confusion that he had created. So a lack of self-awareness also seems to be a component perhaps of innocence. And if you take that back to the garden, think about it. Adam and Eve walked around, danced around, swung around, however they got around in the garden for how knows, who knows how long, right? Naked and unashamed. And they were not ashamed because they were not self-conscious about it. Because when God challenged them and said, Adam, where are you? He said, we... Uh, uh, you know, who, uh, we were afraid because we were naked, and so we hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? So, so that self-awareness of that nakedness is part of this situation. Innocence, the return to innocence, would be a diminishing of self-awareness. And that really struck me with what Dan was teaching all the time. Because I think Dan is only, I think he promotes in his own life, in his own walk with Christ, he promotes only enough self-awareness to reject it. To oh, no, I, you know, I'm not self. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. And immediately that he hears something selfish, self-centered, self-conscious coming in, he turns his heart to the Lord. And, and so I think this idea of self-awareness is interesting. And then here's another one that's a negative, and it's, or it's spoken of in the negative, and it, I think, can stumble us if we're not careful, lacking or deprived of something. In the sentence they use there, as you can see, is her face was innocent of cosmetics. I've never spoken that way. Uh, my wallet is in innocent of money. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it that way, but uh, uh, I can understand where it's coming from. But just the idea of lacking or being deprived. And I think if we think about 
um, the love of the world, that there probably is a relationship to that where innocence would be a lack of that stuff, the appeal of the world, the love of the world. So, as we apply the thoughts about, or the definition of innocent to the concept of innocence, we get freedom from legal guilt of a particular crime or offense. Okay, that makes sense, right? In other words, uh, hey, did you, uh, did you violate that speeding thing? No, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm innocent of that. Freedom from guilt or sin through being acquainted with evil. And then they parallel that with blamelessness, which I thought is interesting. Blamelessness is a word that's used quite a bit in the Bible for a number of different uh, Greek words, which we're going to get into that. That's kind of what the whole point of tonight's going to be. But freedom from guilt or, of, or sin through being unacquainted with evil, to be ignorant of evil, to be blameless of evil. That, when we were talking the other night, we, were, we asked the question, do you think of yourself as innocent? And because, uh, we had a good conversation about it, and because the majority of us, I think, because the majority of us are aware of not good things that we do or think, we, we, it, it almost like vetoes our thought about being innocent. But I, I think that there's a, a higher power at work. And I, 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 that's kind of a double meaning, but there's a higher power, of course, in, in God. But there's a higher power in God where the things of this world and the evil of this world isn't really all that it presents itself to be. It doesn't have the substance to define us. And so I think that's where that comes in. Uh, then there's just basically the idea of ignorance, uh, lack of knowledge. Um, and I thought this was an interesting sentence, written in entire innocence of the science. It describes some of the COVID responses, you know, or whatever. But uh, anyway, it's, it's how it's used. Uh, so it's a lack of knowledge. And again, I go back to the fact that how big a blessing was it to, to acquire the knowledge of good and evil? You know, even though, as you look later in the Revelation of Scripture, we're uh, through the training of our senses to be able to discern good from evil. So I don't think it was a perpetual evil to know good and evil. I think it was a premature evil. And it took the place of the relationship that we were dealing with there. Uh, freedom from guile or cunning. And this is one that I think applies a lot to childness. Simplicity or a lack of worldly experience or sophistication. So innocence is a freedom from guile or a freedom from that sophistication. And then chastity as applied to uh, you know, some uh, physical, moral stuff. And then innocence is the state of a person, one who is innocent. Make sense? So these are just Merriam-Webster. This is how the word's used in our culture and how we start to understand it. So the next thing I like to do, and, I, when I, and you know, I would have thought that the next slide would have just been to cite the Bible verses, a couple of them, to define which of those cultural definitions apply. And then that was when I was surprised when I started looking it up. So here's some biblical words. The Old Testament, there are primarily two variants that I was able to find. One of them is Naki, and one of them is Naqua. And we'll look at Naki first. Uh, 37, it's, it's used about 40-something times in the Old Testament. 37 of them are in the phrase uh, related to innocent blood. 
So it's the shedding of innocent blood, the, the spilling of innocent blood, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so it means, you know, it, it, it's blood that isn't guilty, blood that didn't deserve to die, blood and all that kind of stuff. A couple of the other ones are in Genesis 24:41 and, and 44:10. it has to do with being free from or clear regarding an oath. The same thing here. In 1 Kings 15:22, uh, King Asa made a, a proclamation and uh, he, he declared that no one in the realm, no one in Israel was exempt. And in, in the word exempt, meaning clear or free from. Okay, and then Psalms 20, 4, 4 talks about he that has clean hands, and the whole phrase, has clean hands, is translated from that first word, uh, naki. Okay, so it's a pretty straightforward thing. It's, it speaks about innocence. It speaks about being bound to, not being exempt from. Um, the next one is a little bit more, 43 times uh, out of about 47 or something like that, it means guiltless guiltless, uh, to be made clean. Uh, it's translated once to be bare, to acquit, which is what we think about. How, that's how innocence is manifest in a judicial setting, is that it gets acquitted. Uh, a judge says you're not guilty, that kind of thing. Uh, to be blameless and also to be unpunished. And so this word is the one that kind of launched me into the New Testament concepts, which we're going to look at in just a second. But I think this is pretty straightforward, and I think in, in one of the things I noticed about the way the word is used a lot is it's not terribly philosophic in the Old Testament. It's mostly just straightforward. You know, this person's not guilty. This person's guilty. This person's innocent. Uh, this is innocent blood. You shouldn't have done this. There's a, you know, you've been come against. So as with a, a number of things in the Old Testament, uh, it's, it's pretty straightforward and pretty direct, and we can, we can learn kind of the, the roots of things, the basis from it. All right, now, in the New Testament, there are many. And the only reason I didn't put many, many is because it messed up the alignment in that little narrow box, because there are many, many words for this. And I'm going to walk through each one and, and try to let you see the nuance of it. And, and so I, I want you to understand that these words are not super consistently translated. They are within the, the body of the idea of blamelessness and innocence and freedom from and so on and so forth. But there's a lot, and, and uh, there's even more than I'm going to show you. So here's the first one, athus. Athus means no penalty. All right? And so just, if you're at all familiar with Greek, you know that a word that is preceded by an A, that's a negation. So it, it means not or no, usually. And so the idea of thus is primarily penalty. Now there's more, and I'm going to kind of glance through my notes here to see if any of those... Um, are worth looking at, but uh, now we're okay. Essentially, it's a composite word of a and tithimi, but it's translated innocent sometimes, but it also is also translated like this, no penalty, no, no uh, consequence or something like that. All right, next one. Akariaius. So you see, once again, you have a, a negation in the middle. It's not, and that kariaios means mingled or poured together. So this means not mingled, not mixed. So there is a component to innocence that is about not being a blend of things. Okay? And obviously the thing that most often this refers to is not being mixed with evil or not being mixed with self-centeredness or not being mixed with sin. 
All right, the next one. Now, I didn't put these in a particular uh, order, as you can see by the Strong's numbers. Uh, Akakos, ah, again, is not or no. And the idea of kakos is worthless or... Um, so it's, it's a negation of being worthless or it's a negation of being harmful. It's a negation of being harmful. So in a minute, I'm going to... Well, actually, I think I might do this one because this is kind of an important one. Uh, 726. Hebrews 7.26. This is an important one because it's talking about Jesus. And my thought, and the reason I want to stop there on this is, is when the Bible is trying to articulate the innocence of Jesus as our high priest, that's probably pretty good for us to stick up there as a standard to understand the the upper and the the depth limit of what this concept is going to be. So um, 7.26 reads like this in the American Standard. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so I just wanted you to see that when we're talking about innocence, we're talking about legitimately that concept being applied to Jesus and perhaps even established as a standard by Jesus that uh, whereas other priests were in and out, they were dealing with their own sins. And if you're familiar with Hebrews, you know, it talks about that. It, uh, there, is a, there is a singular quality to innocence and Jesus represents that. And that's going to be kind of a challenge when we realize there is a singular quality to the innocence we're restored to. Because we have a big tendency to see ourselves as mingled and mixed in a mixture. Okay? And I would say that one of the great stumbling blocks in the church for discipleship and growth, personal discipleship and growth, not thinking about being passed on from a leader to somebody, but just in us, learning of the Holy Spirit, is that we continue to think of ourselves as a mixture when, in fact, that may not be true. And I think that's kind of what Dan alludes to when he said, hey, there's thoughts that go through your head that don't belong to you. And there's motives that, that are being thrown at you that truly don't have the capacity to define you. And I will tell a little bit of story. Should I tell it now? Okay, so uh, I don't know if you guys know what ascensions are, but there when you sit there, so we, we have a group of us that, that do them a couple times a week, a couple of different groups actually. And uh, Tim and Meg lead, lead one, Holly leads one. And basically, it's just taking uh, the Lord and Scripture seriously that we really, in fact, are seated in heavenly places with Christ, so there should be some benefit to being seated there. And that uh, the Lord's body is, uh, you know, been torn and, and it's the veil open to heaven. And so we sit around, and it's kind of like we used to have prophetic meetings when I was in Assemblies of God. And, you know, but what, what happened at the prophetic meetings is only the people that were comfortable that they were prophetically gifted or that everybody else was comfortable spoke. But what we found in Ascensions is that the Holy Spirit's willing to show us stuff and lead. And so, you know, it kind of goes back and forth and add on. We don't require that it build doctrine, but it sure does reinforce the Scripture an awful lot. So anyway, we had a, a, an Ascension this week where um, we were little kids sitting around the Lord 
And then he called us to himself, and we jumped on him, started playing, and he sucked us into him, and he took us up to the Father. And um, so, you know, the whole thing, being in Christ, that was cool, and different images. It was pretty neat. And then we found ourselves up there in the presence of the Lord in these bubbles. And I think, Holly, you were the one that kind of got the sense that there was a wave, this, this, sort of this energy from the Father's heart that was also flowing through us. And that energy, and I, I know this sounds, okay, does this sound like it's super weird to anybody? Okay, good. Not yet. I, I haven't got to the good part, but okay, good. So anyway, so it was just, that's what we were seeing. And, you know, we were kind of tracking with that, taking notes and stuff. And um, yeah, seeing it in our mind's eye and so on. Well, so we found ourselves in these bubbles, and the bubbles served a couple of cool functions. One is they stuck together, so it was, it was easy to be in union with one another, kind of like the, you know, joined as one new man thing, Tim. And then the other thing that happened is the bubbles, we, we all got a sense that the bubbles were protecting us. But then as soon as we got that sense of protection, one of the brothers in the, in the ascension got this, this word about unweaving. And that was pretty super fun, because there was this huge sense that there was stuff sort of parasitically woven into us that this whole system of this outward breath of God that suspended the bubble and the permeability of the bubble was designed to to do something with. So we got this sense that as we were in in the presence of the Lord, as we were in this dynamic heartbeat of the Lord and so on, the stuff that had been woven into our life in whatever shape, whether it was DNA or, or just our thoughts or bodies, whatever, it would get unwoven kind of gently, disconnected from us. And then that the same pressure that pushed the, and, and su- supported the bubble pushed this stuff to the edge of the bubble, and the minute it penetrated that permeable, permeable bubble and was outside of us, it was gone. It just disappeared. There was no residue. There was no... Leftover, there was no ash, there was no place you had to take it to the dump or anything. It was a lie. It was false, but it was drawing life through mimicking us. And it was the very kind of energy and love and breath and dynamo of God that pushed it out of us. And, and so it, wasn't, it, it, it had no substance except as it mimicked and parasited us. Does that make sense? So I'm sitting here thinking about this, this unmingled thing, and uh, it was just a fantastic thought that the, the stuff that seems to be so capable of defining negative stuff, thoughts, fears, those kind of things, when they're taken out of the protected and parasitic environment in our lives and exposed for what they really are, it turns out they're not really anything. They're like shadows in the light or darkness. Now, I think that's possible because, think about this, what changed in Adam at the fall that caused him to fear and be ashamed? Nothing. Only internal stuff, right? Only his perception. Did God do anything that Adam uh, legitimately could analyze and compare with other things and go, wow, Lord, we're afraid of you now. No. It was totally an internal deception. It was what I think God said when he said, in dying, you'll die. They began to experience a living lie, but the living lie really didn't have any substance. And so is it possible 
that in the restoration to innocence, the casualty of that restoration is going to be lies that we that borrow from us the authority, the false authority to define who we are and what our limitations are and what our negatives are. And when they go away by the means, and I don't know if we live in a bubble and God blows it out. You know, I mean, I, I, that's not the point. I think he was showing us that, what it's like to be in synergy with his heart and the, and the flow of life that comes from him dislodges the things that seem so incredibly we, uh, real and authoritative about who we are and the, and, and the fact, and so my point in going into that story, uh, aside from the fact it was pretty cool, is um, a lie or an accusation, and I'm always reminded that the thing that the devil is judged for is as the accuser of the brethren and the deceiver. So if he's accusing you, and he's going to be judged for that, and he's deceiving you at the same time, that means that his accusation is not true. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a deception. Right? So, it was pretty cool. I was thinking, okay, so the reason you can let go of this stuff, really, really let go, is because it has no substance. It is completely stealing its ability to define you from you. And the cool part about it is that it was a relatively passive process just being in the Lord. And as soon as I saw myself like in the bubble, you know, like this thing, and, and this stuff was being unwoven from around me and stuff, I thought of how Dan appeared when he walked around and goes, I wake up in the morning and some thought comes in or the one porno movie I watched when I was young flashes through my mind and I just go, thank you, God, that that's not me. It's not even in my head. It's da 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 it's not just some weird system. It's, it's what happened. It's what happens when God has his way in us. And then that's why it's important on this idea of not worthless, not, you know, not full of harm. This is the high priest we have. This is the work he did once for all time. So anyway, I thought that was pretty, pretty exciting. And um, so we'll look at the next one. Now, are you seeing a trend here? The majority of these words start with a negation, a nod. So, amomos, and the word momos is uh, blame, or fault, or spot, or blemish. And you could go back and you could think about how the appropriate sacrifice was one without spot or blemish. It would be a similar parallel to that. But just being soiled, being... being and so amomos is used in a number of words. We'll see it in just a second. But it basically means without blame or without fault or without a stain or without a spot. Okay? Uh, I'm here. I'll look see what Hebrews 9.4 is. I don't remember. Hebrews 9.4. Hebrews 9.4. That doesn't look like what that is. Okay? That's not it. I typed the wrong one in. We'll go to the next ah. Anegletos. This one is, has to do with accusation. It means unaccused or unreprovable. We're going to look at this Colossians verse later. It's a very powerful verse. You guys probably remember what's there, you know, that, that we're alienated and mind engaged in evil deed, but he's presenting us unreprovable. Now, think about that. We just talked about the idea above of blame 
or of the accusations that come against us. And the idea of being unaccusable. How big a deal would that be if we believed that? Unaccusable. But you don't know what I did Thursday. Right. But that doesn't give a parasitic accusation the divine right to be attached to you. It really doesn't. We have to sell this issue in our mind. Like Teflon. Like Teflon. Only from the inside out, not just the outside in. Because you could scratch Teflon and it'll, then your stuff will stick to it. I don't think this is scratchable. Anyway, all right, next one. Abiantos. This is the one that specifically means defiled or stained. So that word, miantos, uh, means stained or marked or uh, spotted or defiled. Soiled. Personally, for me, I think the concept of being, the feeling of being soiled by negative behavior or by a failure, I don't think I usually do affirmative things that make me feel soiled, but I don't do things that I think I should do. And this is kind of a revelation to me because I don't think that it's honoring to what Jesus has done and who he is in me if I allow myself to feel sullied or soiled or dirtied by something. And so this is, this is interesting. Now, look at how many words there are here. All of these are used in one form or another when, when we're being talked about as being innocent or innocence being restored. Another A, look at that. Ah. Naitios. This means no cause against or no crime. Itios. Uh, it's translated as guiltless or chargeless. Okay? There's no cause that can be held against you. Now, there's a scripture, I didn't look it up, but it just came to mind, so I'll share it. You know, where it talks about the ordinances against us being nailed to the cross. We talked about that on Tuesday a little bit. Uh, I don't know what I always thought about that. I just thought Jesus kind of overcame our failure to do the law or whatever. But what if it's really comprehensive? What if everything that could fuel a legitimate accusation or charge against us, Jesus took to himself on the cross? And if it doesn't mean something like that, what does he who knew no sin became sin for us? that we might become the righteousness of God. You know? So this, I, this is cool, because I think, I think the soiled thing there under uh, amiantos is, is something that you can feel just kind of, you got slimed. But the, the cause is a, is a temptation to guilt. It's a temptation that there's an accusation against you that's legitimate. And it sometimes comes out of your, out of your thing. All right. Now, Notice the different color. <laughs> Do you see that this is, doesn't start with an A? I don't know that I've found them all yet, because this, this was a big list to dig through. This is a word that is also translated innocent, in that Luke 23, 47 is when the centurion was standing before Jesus on the cross. And uh, after, you know, he'd been pierced and all that stuff, and he goes, surely this is an innocent man. 
So that's one of the aspects of it. It means just or righteous. So innocence also also carries the, uh, the, the concept of righteousness. And all these others, of course, are negations of negative thing, and righteousness is an is a, a affirmative statement of that. Now, I don't know if, if this strikes you the way it struck me, but when the majority of words that the, the gospel writers had to use chose to use, and when the majority of words that the Holy Spirit used to inspire our understanding of innocence and blamelessness and that, and the majority of them, the vast majority of them, are negations. They're negative. Like the thing, all those first one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and there's one more that I didn't get on there that I know of right now. The the thing all those have in common is the A. The not. So it just feels to me significant to think about the fact that when the Holy Spirit was trying to communicate through the Scripture to us about our recovered innocence, our restored innocence that Jesus was doing, He kept saying over again, you know, the way you're, you're going to understand this, it's not worthlessness. It's not blame. It's not stained, bruised markness. It's not accusations. It's not guilt. It's like the whole world, the whole culture around us is lined up with all of the, all the things that the Holy Spirit has to just one after the other after the other say, no, you're not that. No, you're not that. No, you're not that. No, you're not that. No, you don't, you're, you don't need to be ashamed. You see what I'm saying? I thought this was going to be, when, Ronnie, when you asked the question on Tuesday, I thought we'd have a pretty clear, you know, definition. But I think what I'm discovering in Scripture, and this is going to be a multi-week message, okay? Or, I mean, a multi-piece message. Because I, 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 don't, I don't want to just get stuck in the language. I want to get into the application of this thing some and how we see ourselves, how we see what Jesus did, and how we see one another. But look at how many words had to have a it's not put in front of it to cover everything that restored innocence delivers us from. Does that make sense? That is incredible. And I think I find in myself the capacity to maybe not feel like I deserve a penalty, not feel that I'm particularly mingled, not maybe feel like I'm blemished, but then soiled. That's not exactly the same thing as blemished. And that one is like a dagger in my heart. And I I take it. I take it as a defining moment. Now, maybe it's just temporary, but this is what I saw when I started digging through this, and I didn't really... I, I still don't actually know how to how to convey how big I think it is. All of the accusations and all of their permutations and all of their variables that the world and that the flesh and that the enemy can come against us with, restored innocence is the knot to every one of those. 
And the, the one thing that it is, is righteous. Wow. You see what I'm saying? This is a big deal if we can think about it. Because I think that we can get better at rejecting the, the idea that we deserve a penalty or that we're mixed or that we're worthless or that we've caused harm or whatever, or that there's an accusation. And, you know, an accusation is not worth its salt if it doesn't have a little bit of a cultural truth to it or relevance to it. But, it, but it's, a not, it's a not thing. Accusations are not things in restoration. Stains are, are not reproof. The idea of being unreprovable. Unreprovable. You can't reprove me. You can't accuse me. I'm starting to understand a little bit more now. And I, I've listened to Dan for a long, long time. But I'm starting to understand the, the sort of blanketness of what he's, you know, just the, hey, it doesn't matter. It doesn't. Because all the variables that our culture and our soul, uh, our flesh and the enemy, all the variables that he can come at you with, are all disempowered by a knot in the Scripture. I think that's pretty significant. All right. So now, uh, and, and this I'll just show you because there's a, whole, there's a whole another word that I didn't even get on the list because I found it later. Uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Uh, this was one that came up. It kind of got me thinking on this a lot because it links back to the idea of being a child and so on. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. Now, I, I don't know if you guys memorized all the numbers as I was sharing them, but 273 wasn't on there. It's another, it's another one. Uh, 273, I wrote it in here, is amemptos. And it has to do with not finding fault. Memphomai uh, is to find fault. So it also is translated irreproachable, faultless, blameless, unblameable, or I say it's blameless right there. So that is, that's now eight of those things, eight of those knots. And I'm pretty sure there's going to be some more as I dig around and look for them. But so do all, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you will prove yourselves to be. There's nothing corrective in that phrase. In other words, the benefit of not grumbling or disputing is that so who you already are in Christ will be proven. Not so that you can dig your hole out of something, one of those things you're not. Okay? And innocent children of God above reproach. Innocent represents that state that we find ourselves in, that God sees us as. Blameless is the freedom from fault or guilt. And above reproach is the unreprovable part the part that doesn't allow accusations against us 
to have any weight, to have any sticking power. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. I always hate cutting a verse off, but you can only put so much on a screen and talk about it. Um, it, it talks about if you hold fast to the, to the gospel, to the faith. So we do have to believe this. That's our opportunity. But I don't want you to, I, I don't think the best way to think about it is to say you have to believe this. You do have to believe it because it's the truth, but you get to believe it because it's the truth. And then the thing that stands in the way, I think, of us getting to believe in our innocence is we believe the things which are not. And so this is all going to work in our favor if we'll understand it. We have been restored to innocence. That is why we don't have to be a victim. That is why we don't have to entertain accusations. That is why we don't have to see ourselves as soiled or damaged goods. So that's that one. Now, that is a big deal. That's talking about you and I. That's applying innocence to us. Okay? This one, same way. Colossians 1, 21, 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, which that verse 21 pretty much sums up all the things that opened the door to all the accusations. Right? Alienated in mind, feeling picked on, feeling lost, feeling separated from God. Hostile in our mind, Angry with him, bring an accusation back against him. Why me? Why'd you do this? Why, why, why? And then engaged in evil deeds. The thing that we take as proof for the reality of our alienation is all a lie. It's all a lie. And we have to face it that way. We have to push back against it somehow, like that. Uh, yet he has now, when? That was written before you and I suffered any of that hostility of mind or engagement in evil deeds. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you. Who is presenting whom? He is presenting you. Who is he presenting you to? I think he is presenting you to the cosmos. But I think especially he is presenting you to the Father. But I think to the cosmos. I mean, there are arguments. Here's why I would make that as an argument. The Corinthians were fighting and bickering with one another and taking each other to court. And Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? He was presenting them, you know, or the Gentiles. Or uh, when Peter came up and reverted back to, to Judea, the Judaizers' pressure to not eat with the Gentiles. He was challenged that way. I think it's because Paul understands that Jesus is presenting us, and he is presenting us not just to the Father, but to the whole of creation. If you jump over and think about how Paul wrote about creation in Romans, in chapter 8, creation is waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God, the children of God. That's us. So this thing over here, 
Don't do it with grumbling and disputing so that you can prove yourselves to be blameless, to be innocent, and to be above accusation, above reproach, in the midst who you appear as lights to the world. You're children of God, shining as lights in the world. And then over here, it's talking about even though you used to be this, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and above reproach. That's what I felt happened to us in that ascension, is the Lord just gave us a vision, an image of what it's like for him to gather us into himself and take us to the Father, like it says in John 14, 20. And that day, you'll know that I'm in my Father, and you're in me, and I'm in you. Right? I'm in you, you're in me, I'm in my Father. We are in the presence of the Father in Christ, being presented as holy. That word happens to be hagios, just it's the normal word you get in Greek for holy. Blameless, 299, what was 299? 299, 299. Amamos, yep, blameless, without blame, without spot, without fault. And beyond reproach, 410, is the one that's hard to pronounce. Anegletos, irreproachable. That last one means uh, unaccusable. Unaccusable. Now, think with me. The distortion, just as one example, the distortion that we have, most of us have grown up with, about what it's going to be like to appear before the Lord and give an account for our deeds. Dave and I had a conversation about this earlier this week. I mean, has anybody here ever thought about and somewhat dreaded the concept of being brought before the Lord where you had to give an account for your... (laughs) What it says there is that that event is going to happen and you are going to be in a position because of Christ and your belief of being unaccusable. By who? Yeah, but he's going to be, he's going to be silenced way before that event. I, I, don't, I, I, think, I think we're ourselves. I think the Father. I think what's being said here is God's not going to be able to accuse you because of the work, the reconciling work to innocence that Jesus has done. So I like to tell people this, just as an image. One of the beasts that I have with how uh, heavily we lean on substitutionary uh, aspects of atonement is that it, it creates a sort of a hesitancy on our part to think about genuine transformation. And so if you go all the way back to when I was a young person, which some of you are not old enough to do that, you know, the chick track kind of idea where you've got God up there with no face and a lightning bolt and a hammer and it's behind a bench, so this is a judgment scene. Then you have a bunch of people out here and then you have Jesus kind of doing the shielding thing between God's wrath and the people. All right. And then somehow the gates of heaven open up because Jesus is an effective shield and the whole him and all these people scoot over and are now in, in heaven. What a wonderful place to be. It's a place that in the midst of it is the throne of the Father that we had to be shielded from to get there. (laughs) That's not going to be heaven, guys. That would be another place. (laughs) Here's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is going to be eventually, through whatever means of all of this life in Christ, 
and all of that unweaving and stuff getting out of the bubble or whatever, it's going to be a place where when we are presented before the Father, in His omniscient, all-seeing, perfect vision, and in the radiance of Him as light, and that light being full judgment, He is going to look in our eyes, and He's going to hold our face. Hebrews 4, if you want to look at it, we pass before His eyes. He's going to look at us, and without blinking, and without us turning away, because of the transforming work that Jesus has done, he's going to say, Doug, I find no fault in you. (laughs) That is innocence in play in heaven. And we get glimpses of it in other scriptures, and I'll close just with an allusion to this one. When, uh, when John's talking about we have come to know and believe the love God has for us, it's, he, he then goes on and links that to the fact that because uh, there is no fear in love. Love um, has to do with punishment. And that's why we are confident in the day of judgment because of this work. And I think what we need to understand is that the, the consequence of love, the Father's love, through Jesus to you and to me is utter transformation into blamelessness, into holiness, into not being marked, not being mingled, not being accusable, not being all the knots. See what I'm saying? So as we explore this idea and as we link it to the idea of of, of the transformation into childness, into childhood, I think we're going to find that Something's going to have to shift in our mind. Something's going to have to shift in our mind. And um, we're going to have to realize that no matter how intuitive, no matter how just it feels to accuse ourselves and to receive accusations, no matter how logical it seems to defend our mixtures, it is simply not true. It is a lie. It is a parasitic lie, twisting the truth about us to try to keep us from the the glory and the relationship that's there. So I'm pretty excited about digging deeper into innocence. I really am. But that's about as uh, much as I got for right now. So uh, the mic is on and available, although I think we're... We might be running out of battery or something here. Let me just try and see. Oh, there it goes. It's hanging green. So if anybody has any thoughts or questions or anything, uh, and then we need to let Laurel and Vicky know. Oh, Vicky's there. We need to let Laurel know that we'll be, well, she'll hear when we get up and start. Anybody got any thoughts? Jay? I, abs- I absolutely love this. Good. Um, my question is, what do we do with the term sanctification? Because mm. I've heard people... Uh, take this and say we no longer need to be sanctified. Sanctified, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I definitely couldn't give any kind of comprehensive answer. Do you, do you have a thought, uh, an idea, or do you no. want me to postulate? Okay, so uh, that is probably something that would... This is a beautiful thing about this. 
this idea of recovered, uh, restored innocence is so incredibly comprehensive. It's going to touch on almost every one of those things. So I bet you that this is what we'll find. We'll find that there is a necessary process dislodging our capacity to be accused and to be lied. But sanctification is not about taking us from a state of ugly corruption into a state of sinless perfection. It's taking us from a state of self-deception and vulnerability to accusation to a growing awareness of how the Father sees us and what Jesus has done to us and what he's done in us and what we are doing in and through and to the world. So that's what I'm hoping. That would be my guess. And I think that's worth digging into. Because if you can get that mindset changed, holy moly, you can't be blackmailed anymore, right? You can't be blackmailed anymore. Yeah. Similar vein to what Jay said. <laughs> oh, he took cuts in front of the sound guy. It doesn't work, man. The guy with the controls has got the mic. That's what's it In a similar vein to what... Jay said, what about the scripture that says, work out your salvation? In other words, uh-huh. is, innocence, is innocence part of salvation? Oh, so, I, so? I, would, I would certainly think so. Yeah, I would think so. And so... So the working out is something that we might want to dig yeah, into someday. Yeah, yeah. Again, you know, there, are we, do we fully embrace our innocence right now? I would say the majority of us do not. Therefore, there's room for us to grow. But we're growing, get this, we're growing literally from restored innocence. We're growing. Because the only opinion, okay, certainly the opinion that matters the most in the whole cosmos is whose? It's God's. It's the Father's, right? He sees us as we are. The second opinion that matters the most regarding our behavior is ours. Nobody else's really matters unless we let them through surrendering our own dignity. And so we're starting um, we're starting from a position where we were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. We're starting from a place that Jesus assumed on the cross, penetrated into the depth of our deception and distortion and our, our crazy psych ward view of things. And, and, and when he got to the bottom of that, it issued out of him as a cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where all of us start. In our perception. Where we start in Christ, in reality is all of those false perceptions have been turned inside out and we, we begin our journey in ignorance of our innocence. We'll talk about that because one of the things I think works against this, Ronnie, and that, that uh, makes some sense of why there's a process to work out your salvation, so on and so forth. Theologically, I think this has been destructive for a long time. We think that Adam was made perfect, and then he fell into corruption. I think what the scripture teaches is that he was made innocent, 
but undeveloped fully. And when he fell, his development was cut short. And so that leaves still our development, but it doesn't come from our status in the eyes of God. So somehow we're going to do that. Sterling? I could, I could see this becoming the kind of thing where people go, okay, I believe in this, but I feel like there's something else that has to occur. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Dan brought up uh, water baptism, yeah. a baptism of the Holy Spirit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, death. You know, like people are still putting it off for whatever reason. Like there's just this secondary thing where innocence in and of itself isn't enough on its own. I just feel this sense that people could automatically kind of think that they way. They could, yeah, yeah. So. Some, maybe we can address it. Um, just the, you know, off the top of my head, reason why that's probably a, a common reality is, is, is because we look too much at ourselves for evidence and too little at Jesus. If we will look more intently at Jesus, and if we can ever get to the point where we can take on a notepad and say, all right, so Jesus did this, Jesus accomplished this, Jesus did this, did this, did this, did this, and did this. And so that really doesn't leave a lot to be done. That leaves a lot to be believed. But I don't think we look at it that way. I, I think that we, most of us live with a, with a subconscious belief that Jesus died and rose again to give us the opportunity to be innocent. We are new, we are new creatures. We are new, and, and, and Paul says that plain out. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. And see, we don't give the, that the weight. So we're struggling to believe, really, I think, in that thing. Yes. Um, yeah, pull it down there. It'll, yeah. <laughs> Um, so I get confused with, I guess I'm not really thinking about this until I'm hearing this, but so like righteousness, because uh-huh. I think I somewhere in my mind, or maybe even subconsciously work in righteousness with innocence with, and so, but what is the difference with, does righteousness make you innocent. innocent or are they different? I don't think they're as different as we think. That was why I brought that last, uh, this last verse. This dikaios uh, uh, is just or righteous, meaning unblameless. So, for instance, if the other words, the not words, they point. So, if there's no cause against you, there's no cause against you. You you are righteous. Uh, if if you are guiltless, the opposite of guiltless is not being guilty or being being righteous. Uh, if, if you're not blemished. So I think there's probably more of a relationship there. And then the, I don't, but I don't think that that's necessarily going to cause you or I to stumble getting to it because we're in that situation where truly it says, um, he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Now, is the become, again, because it's a process word and that's how most of it's translated and I haven't looked into it, so I don't know if it's good. Do we assign it to, okay, I'm, I'm only 8% righteous. And so to become, I take a step and now I'm 11% righteous. Then I take a big step and now I'm 20% righteous. You know, that. I think that's how most of us think about it. And that's how I think we think about sanctification too. But there's got to be something. I think it's something different. I think we're going to find that there is an agreement with the reality that God already has done. 
Jesus did say something very important near the end of his time on the cross. Can any of you think what it is? It is finished. And he wasn't just saying, oh, cool, this ordeal's over. No. Yes. Um, okay, and this is kind of different field. But um, with the innocence, can this apply at all? Because you brought up creation. Mm-hmm. And, and we're part of creation. And everything fell with Adam. And I, when I do hear the word innocence, I immediately think of the garden. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I think of Adam and Eve and, and how it was before. So how does this apply to animals? Oh, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? No, the, the only hint I would have is that at some point, the lion eats straw with the ox, and it's not dangerous to picnic around the hole of a viper. I would say so. Yeah, I think there's a real good chance of that. And dogs that aren't as sweet as, as Atlas will probably still be okay after that fact. All right. Here, you could use... You can use mine. Go ahead and ask your Okay. Um, I looked up the word sanctify on my little concordance here. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so I had this argument, or not argument, but debate with my mom about um, it's a process, you know, being sanctified, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this says to make holy, treat as holy, set apart as holy, Sanctified, hallow, purified. So it, the word in itself seems to just contain that we are holy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And, and when, so here, I, I don't have a definitive answer to this that I can just say, yeah, look at this, look at this. This is proving it. But I do believe this is what we're going to discover over the next few weeks is that the, the incremental nature of this stuff is based upon our perception of it and ability to believe it. It is not based on how God sees us, nor what our actual standing is. Because our actual standing has been dramatically affected by what Christ has done already. And then coming into alignment with who we are in Him, I think is what we're going to discover. Okay? All right, so we'll we'll look it up and uh, appreciate appreciate the questions. Um, Speaking of questions, there was one question that, uh, there was a number of questions, but there was one interesting question that didn't get answered in the Q&A, and I saw it when I took the list home, and I wish we'd had a chance to talk about it, Uh, uh, but it said, why does the church not preach purity uh, and purification anymore? And I think it's a relevant question to this idea of innocence. It's because we don't really believe it. We don't really believe that Jesus has made us pure. We don't really believe that that's God's objective. And again, I personally think it's because we have too much weight on substitutionary stuff and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I think we're going to discover some neat things when we get in this way. And what I really want to see emerge out of this to see if it's true is, is this idea of being a child, is that, is that part of the vehicle for sanctification? Is that part of the vehicle for the restoration of these things and stuff? I'm going to call the worship team up, but you can ask one more while they're coming. Okay. Make it away. It's more of a statement. It's actually a musical statement. How about that? Okay. Musical? Musical. So in music, there's different harmonics. Mm -hmm. 
And when one note is in tune with another one, there's a cumulative effect that makes the sound much more, there's more presence to it, is what they call it in the music yeah, world. Yeah, that's, that's Whereas if something's off a little bit, meaning it's not pure, it may sound pretty good, but it's not the same. It doesn't have the same reach. So there may be something going on with yeah. that too. The agreement, the agreement between, I mean, really, uh, what is it? What is it to not be insane? Isn't it to, f to think that things are like they really are? And what is it that's a degree of insanity? To think that things aren't what they really are, or they are what they're really not. And so again, all these are nots, I think is a big deal. So, cool. Uh, bless you guys, this was fun. Thank <laughs> you.